Welcome back, everybody, to the Fearless Training Raw Knowledge Podcast with your host, myself, as ever, Alex Connor, where we talk everything training, nutrition, and lifestyle collectively. And this is episode 50, and I have got a treat for you today. I'm in conversation with Dr. Bill Campbell, who is a pioneer of sorts and specializes in performance and physique enhancement. But before I delve into that and let him do the introductions, I just wanted to say I hope everyone is enjoying their time back at the gym now. And if you're not quite there yet, hopefully it's not too far away. I hope everyone's just getting back into the feel, into the zone, not pushing too hard, but just getting back to those basics and being able to get in the gym, feel the blood in the muscle, move through those familiar movement patterns, the environment, the people, the friends, the atmosphere, all of those simple pleasures I hope you're uh, not taking it for granted as much anymore. And as always, guys, I want to thank you all for listening. Episode 50 came around pretty fast, and I really appreciate all of the positive feedback. And I would like to encourage you to go and leave a rating and a review on iTunes, Spotify, or if you listen on YouTube, leave a comment. Make sure to subscribe as it helps the channel grow. And if you really do like these episodes, share it around and take a moment if it's safe to do so and you're not driving just to do that for me. I really, really appreciate it and it helps out greatly. But I'm going to keep it there. I'm going to keep it short. I'm going to keep it sharp. I'm going to keep it sweet because it is a belting conversation today. You're going to enjoy it. Lots of golden nuggets in with this one. And without further ado, enjoy this week's conversation between myself and Dr. Bill Campbell. Bill, welcome to the Fearless Training Raw Knowledge Podcast. Thanks for making the time. How's things uh, at your end? Oh, very good. Uh, beautiful day in Florida today. Uh, low 90s, very sunny. It's a beautiful day. And thank you for the opportunity to discuss my research and wherever our conversation takes us with, with your audience. Absolutely. My pleasure. Sounds very much like uh, Gold Coast weather in Florida. I've heard there are a lot of similarities, hence why people love to live there. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I've heard the same thing. Have you had a chance to uh, come over to Australia yet, Bill? And especially the Gold no, Coast? not yet. Um, I, I really hope to get there within the next year, though. Fantastic. I was going to say, I think you'll uh, find it very homely in, in many respects. Now, before we get into it, just to set the scene, and for people who may not be aware of who you are, can you give us a bit of a background of who you are, what you do, and most importantly, as always, why you do it? Sure, yeah. So I'm a professor of exercise science at the University of South Florida, which is located in Tampa, Florida. And I've been in that role for 13 years. It was my first job after getting my PhD. And I got my PhD at Baylor University in exercise, nutrition, and preventive health. And I always had this dream to have my own lab. And it started off being very focused on sports nutrition. And over the years, it's kind of moved a little bit more into physique enhancement or physique science. So we study some bodybuilders and people that just want to look better. And I would say the kind of the... The purpose of my lab is to help people optimize their physiques within a maintainable lifestyle. So within that framework, we study bodybuilders because they seem to be the experts of fat loss. But my research really isn't for bodybuilders. Uh, there's a lot of information for them. But what I like to do is take what I learned from bodybuilders and from resistance trained people and then maybe scale it back a notch or two and, and then teach people through our research, what are the best practices that you can look like a bodybuilder in your everyday life without actually stepping on stage? And why am I passionate about this? Well, I think just in general, my mind works like a scientist. I, I like to track everything. I like things to be consistent. I'm kind of a black or white individual in my mind. So I think this career has suited me very well. I'm very blessed to, to be in this career. And I, I, just, I, I, I just enjoy the research process. Not all parts of it, but getting a study going, developing a team, getting everybody to execute on the plan. Those are the best parts of what I do. For sure. And I mean, what a job. What a job. 
studying, you know, physique development and enhancement, I, we are blessed to, to live in a day and age where we can do that. I think straight away, you probably got a lot of people's attention. I know you got mine specifically when you said, you know, be it, making it a little bit more sustainable and diluting, if you will, what, you know, the top end bodybuilders are doing, you know, the best physiques in the world. And then, you know, being able to extrapolate, you know, applicable information across to people who want to look really good. Now, I know myself and a lot, a lot of people out there want to walk around looking like quote unquote bodybuilders. Now, obviously there's a bit of stereotype, but let's just say someone with an enhanced physique, um, but doing it naturally and being able to sustain it. And I think there's a lot that we can unpack within that. Before we do, I want to take a bit of a left turn. Because a lot of listeners and a lot of people out there, they have no idea about what is involved in research. And they think, you know, they sort of see it or they read about it or they hear about it and they think about people in white lab coats and all this sort of stuff. So perhaps could you walk us through a typical day, uh, usually, because I imagine it's a bit different now, a day in the life of what, you know, it can look like you know, in your role and completing research and, you know, speaking and communicating to people on your team and actually what the process is to develop research and, you know, get published articles out there, even if you have to streamline it, because I think this is something that's overlooked and a lot of people fear it because they get their information from, you know, shiny magazines, they get it from social media and they fear the ability to perhaps, you know, read a journal article or even go to places like mass monthly applications and strength sports and even sort of start to distill and, and learn, you know, more legitimized information that would benefit them rather than getting it from secondary, third, fourth, fifth sources, which perhaps are not quite accurate and are going to lead them down the garden path. Yeah. So the, I'll start with building a team. Mm-hmm. So my research team is large. It's about 25 students. Most of them are master students. We don't have a doctoral program. Mm-hmm. So mostly master students, some undergrads. And when I say build the team, that's the area that I've been really focused on for the last few years. As I've learned that I need to become more productive, I've shifted my mindset from a bill has to do it all the study idea, the data collection, the writing, the management. And I shifted to say, I need to delegate better. And this has two good purposes. One, it's better for me. And two, when I wasn't doing that, I was not generating leaders in my program. So the more that I can have my students take the lead on these projects with just my oversight, that's a that's a win-win. So that's an area of, of focus that I've been on for a while, and I'm constantly trying to get better with that. It's interesting. Most of all of the pleasure books I would say I read are always about personal development, marketing, um, leadership, management. So my pleasure reading is in the business realm. And then obviously my day-to-day readings in the scientific literature and textbooks and things like that nature. So I think the first thing to appreciate when doing research is somebody had to do that with a team of people. Nobody does this on their own. And I take very seriously this team approach. So once you have the team together, then you have to start thinking about, like I'll give an example. We're gonna do a protein intake study starting in the fall. And I won't go into the details. We can later if you want. But we're basically, we're going to use resistance trained females and we're going to see the the benefits that higher protein intakes have in non-resistance trained females. So we know we want to start that in the fall. We started talking about that about a year prior, just started to generate ideas. Then we got real serious in January and February of this year. And again, we're not even going to start this study until August or September. So we're, we're way back in January or February, getting the ideas, uh, determining how many subjects we need, uh, what's our capacity for testing each week, if we can get all these subjects, how are we going to analyze this data? So then you have to go through an application process through the university. And we actually, today was the, yesterday was the day we finally submitted this. And as an example, I submitted one 20 page paper document as part of that application and then another 10 page document. So that's a 30 page 
over two documents, not counting the application. That's just to get the study approved. That's actually none of the actual work that we'll do when we actually get subjects. So one of them is the protocol that just says, this is everything we're planning to do. And we have to estimate like it's gonna take us three minutes to do their weight. It's gonna take us 25 minutes to do their metabolic rate. So it's very detailed, which is important because we have to plan for our capacity. And then the other document was an informed consent. I think I looked at the words, it was 30 pages. It was around 10,000 words between these two documents. So the other thing I would impress upon people is the work is done way ahead of the actual start of the study. Now, once we get the study approved, now the next largest hurdle is to get subjects. It's hard to recruit subjects. Um, as you can imagine, people start and quit or they can't handle it. We do mostly dieting studies and we're asking lean people to diet. So I don't study obese people any longer. Mm -hmm. So in some sense, people may not want to diet when they're not overweight. So we, that, then there's that part of it. And then it's just executing day after day, making sure everybody has a defined role, uh, making sure we're ethical in the data collection, that, we're, that we, try to, we try not to let our biases influence our study designs. Uh, now let's go. Let's pretend that next, let's see, we started in the fall, we'll be done by next May. So now the study's over. So May 2021, we have our 70 subjects. Now we got to analyze all that data. So I just started consulting with a data analyst. You've probably heard of Dr. Eric Trexler. Oh, I know Mr. Trexler. Yes. So he has become my lab's data analyst because he's able to do things that are much more sophisticated than what I can do. So, and he's, he's just been a phenomenal colleague. Um, he's so brilliant. Um, again, his mind just works better. So he'll analyze that data for us. And he's actually been involved in the study design as well. Mm -hmm. So then we analyze the data. Then we will publish some ab or submit some abstracts. And that's not the real paper yet. That's just a summary of the study that you present at an academic conference, like the International Society of Sports Nutrition or the National Strength and Conditioning Association. So you're able to put out the results as an abstract but it's not published yet. So after that, you then submit it to a journal and the journal kind of beats you up. They tell you how ugly your mom is. They say, why did you do this with this subject? Why did you use this test? So they beat you up quite a bit. Then you <laughs> hope after a round or two or three of revisions that they accept it, then it gets published. Then everybody says, oh, that's a great study. Or they, again, now that I'm in social media, I was never on social media before about a year ago. What I've learned pretty quickly is there's, <laughs> it's just as brutal with the, the armchair scientist kind of, it's <laughs> like, I've already been insulted by the reviewers of the journal. Now I've got, you know, Sally from Australia telling me how horrible it was. <laughs> oh, you got to watch those Australians, mate. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, that's a minority and they, they usually have very good points. Oh, I'm um, just messing. Yeah. No, most of it on social media has been great. So that's, I, I hope that answered your question. Yeah, no, no, it, it's good. I, 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 there's a lot of detail in there. So I appreciate you sort of streamlining it, but not oversimplifying it because it is a process. And I think for people who, you know, there will be people listening who are, are aware, but there'll be a lot that are not aware of the depth and the precision that needs to go in. Uh, Eric Trexler, Dr. Trexler, phenomenal. He was on uh, the, the podcast a couple of episodes ago. Very analytical mindset, uh, brilliant mastermind, very sort of more of a, he strikes me as a, more of a quieter character, but there's a lot going on. Um, you know, he's very calculated in his approach, but yeah, very, very talented and very humble, which is um, great, great traits. He's very <laughs> funny too. He's very dry, isn't he? Yes, yeah. I, the, more, the more I get to know him, he cracks me up. It's, it's the same with him and uh, Greg when those two uh, are together and even, you know, add Helms in the mix and then even get Zordos around the table and it's just absolutely brilliant <laughs> because it's just these little like backlashes of puns. So, but yeah, the, the, um, the armchair scientists definitely, that is a, a contributing factor on social media. So welcome, welcome to that world. So, you know, you've got even more critics, but it is interesting about one of my, 
next questions was about what are the most challenging areas of what you do. And now you've said earlier that, you know, one of the the things you enjoy the most is that you're passionate about it. You get to do what you love. So I imagine that sort of ticks that box. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm, I'm reading between the lines here, Bill, that some of the most challenging parts of what you do is consistency. If I had to sort of summarize being it with, you know, finding people that are committed I remember when I started studying and I had no clue about anything and I started um, to participate in a study and I only started because there was a gentleman in the class that was into lifting and I sort of looked up to him. He was a couple of years older than me. He was big. He was strong. I thought, right, this guy knows what he's doing. And he said, Alex, we should, we should do this study, you know, because we've got a squat bench dead so many times a week and it'll be good for you. And I went, oh, all right. And I thought, well, it's good to, to help these masters and whatever students out. And I had no idea at the time. I look back now and go, man, like we were, we were good. We were, really, we were some good students for those people because we just turned up and we did everything they asked. And, and I look back and go, man, it is hard because there were so many people even that participated in that study that dropped out or, you know, they wouldn't do things correctly and they weren't consistent. So I imagine that's a big factor. But are there any other areas of what you do build that? you find really, really challenging or that is, is always hard to negotiate with? I would say one of the, one of the things that's challenging and I'll tell you how I'm, how I'm trying to handle it. A lot of people think that research is fun because they see me doing this podcast or they'll see me at a conference and they'll think, wow, I would love to do that. And what, what I try to tell people is, or students that want to come study with me. This is one sliver of that pie. I mean, do they see us entering in data for three hours? Do people think that we're watching people lift weights four hours per day, um, writing these big documents that nobody will ever see or even think about just to get the study approved? So most of the research work is very boring and repetitive and not fun at all. The funnest part is going to a conference and presenting it and again, having conversations like this with you. And I think some people don't necessarily see all of that. And that's true of every industry. Um, Mm. Actors, actresses, I'm sure it it seems glamorous, but nobody sees them getting up at four o'clock to learn their lines for that day. Um, Correct. So there's that. And then the other challenging thing is I have students that want to come to study with me and they say, Hey, I want to do this study or that study. And I've, I've gotten to the point and I say this up front, I'd say this on my first phone call. First of all, I give them eight reasons to not study with me mm-hmm. because I want, you know, I don't want to, I, I basically tell them the same thing I'm telling you. Nothing about this is really fun. There are moments of fun. Um, and it's a great career, but what we, what we do is we watch people lift weights and we help them track their macro. And, and we measure their fat and metabolism. That's really what we do. But I've, I've really said, hey, if you're going to come study with me, we are a team and we tackle big, big studies like flexible dieting, diet refeeds, diet breaks, glute hypertrophy, high protein. And I don't allow my students to do their own smaller studies. So they have to sacrifice a small study that wouldn't be solving a big problem because students don't have those resources. Instead, they become one member of a 25 person team with all with a common direction of solving some physique science question or problem. And that's hard for a lot. And I tell people, if you want to do your own study, don't come to my program because I can't facilitate that. I can't facilitate 25 individual small studies. I don't have enough time and those smaller studies are not going to change the industry. So what we're doing, I think, is impacting the industry. But last thing, while I say these are negatives of studying with me, I'm going to give you leadership opportunities. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to mentor you. I'm going to provide you opportunities to fail. So I've gotten a lot better in that. So there are positives and negatives. And I just hope that I'm transparent with anybody about those. For sure. Well, look, I mean, I think the feedback and the reputation that precedes you sort of does emphasize that and the fact that sometimes you do have to sacrifice 
shorter term pleasures for longer term gains. And by, you know, creating those habits and behaviors and learning and, and perhaps even educating yourself in better practices when, you know, you've got young researchers coming on board and if they can work with yourself, with your team for a while, they might go, okay, this is the standard. This is what we need to do. This is the methodology. And this is then how they can go ahead in the future and perhaps create their own teams, but actually, you know, make a meaningful impact. Because at the end of the day, like you said, Bill, it's all of this is in aid of helping, you know, many other people. So it's, you guys are obviously doing the legwork, but really it's a very, um, selfless endeavor to be able to then give back and, and, you know, you put all this time in to create, you know, to pave the way for the future, if you like, yeah, which is really exciting. And I, I think that's something that would interest me if I was to become, you know, a researcher or go down that path because I could go, well, look, I'm, I'm kind of on the front line here. There's probably going to be hours and hours and days and years of work, which is just not wasted, but it will never see the light of day. But then by doing that and by sifting through, you'll find those little golden nuggets. And, and like you said, when you get to present that information and you get the feedback, I think that makes it all worth it. The state of affairs at the minute with global nutrition is a bit wayward. Um, you're probably aware of Eric and both, both uh, Eric's, uh, Dr. Joe and a group of other people, Paul Ravella, et cetera, who have created the Nutrition Global Coaching. Um, so they've created these seminars and symposiums to try and create awareness and improve the industry standard. There's a, it definitely needs to be improved in my opinion. In respect to that, Bill, with your knowledge, uh, what do you think, and this is a big question, so perhaps you can just sort of pick out the bits you think. How do you think as coaches, practitioners, researchers, we can help, apart from doing more research, raise the industry standard for trainers, you know, physique coaches, et cetera, athletes out there to better educate them, to provide you know, more qualitative information and cut through all of the minutia that is out there from, I'll quote your words, the, the armchair scientists. I th again, I'm not a social media person, but, but I think the, the popularity of social media over the last five to 10 years has, has probably done a lot to help the situation because if somebody is going to be treated unethically or unhealthy, that really can't be hidden any longer. Somebody might say, hey, I work with this coach. And they had me take, you know, 23 different supplements, eat 700 calories per day while doing four hours of cardio um, and live in a sauna, you know. So I, I would say just the, the transparency of the current environment, I think will help the situation. I think also having ethical people at the, the top. So I, I look at like people like Lane Norton, Eric Helms, Paul Revelia, Lauren Conlon, those type of people dr are driving a certain standard. And I, I, I mean, I'm living this in the sense that the evidence-based community is growing and growing. I know we're not anywhere close to the, uh, I guess, what you'd call pop culture fitness area. That's, that's a much bigger piece of the pie. But I think it's, I, I'm optimistic about the, the future of the issue of just raising the standard. Mm, yeah, there's, there's definitely a, a, a lot that goes within that. And like you said, it probably is a double-edged sword in many ways because the exposure that people are getting, it's harder to hide the gaps or eventually, you know, the truth always rises. Um, in terms of, and again, it's different depending on where you live in the world, However, the ISSN is probably one of the best places to start. What would you recommend for young or new emerging coaches that, and personal trainers that want to increase their education, improve their education with nutrition? Where would you recommend they start in terms of certifications to be able to help their clients a little bit more? And maybe there's other resources as well that you, you might want to include, like mass, et cetera, in your opinion. Yeah, so I, I guess a shameless plug, come get a master's degree with me because we actually study physique science and we do research. So <laughs> there's, there's a great start. But that's, again, that would be a master's degree. In terms of certification, I think you mentioned multiple outlets. Um, you mentioned Mass would mm -hmm. be a great resource. Now, 
to be fair, I don't read any of them just because my, my time is spent in other places. For sure. But I know I'm, I'm basing this on the people. Um, I would, let me just, just, I mean, mass would be one weightology with James Krieger. I don't know him personally, but he seems to put out really good information. Um, Lyle McDonald, I've, I don't know him at all, but his books have are seem to be really done. The little bit that I have read him, I think we agree on a lot of things. Um, certifications. Um, I would just make sure that, and again, this is an area where I think we need to do a lot better. It seems like there's a ton of certifications, but none of them seem to be accredited certification. So everybody now is saying, let's do this, let's make a certification. And it may be good, but, and I guess this is my educator coming out, if it's not accredited, it can definitely lack in some essential components. Mm -hmm. Like if something's accredited, you have to have a plan for a customer complaint. So if it's not accredited, well, you could ignore that complaint, but not if it's a, not if you're going to maintain your accreditation. Now it's a lot of time and money to do that. So I understand, I can appreciate why a lot of organizations don't do that. Um, so th those are my thoughts on, I, I guess, reps, Base it on reputable, reputable people who've been around for a while to have a track record in terms of consuming their products. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely a, a big gray area, gray area, I think. And especially when you go into studying nutrition, you generally, for the most part, you go in towards like a, a registered dietitian route. I feel, I feel there's a lot for, and there's nothing wrong with this, you know, prevention and cure rather than performance. And I think sometimes and i've had a lot of conversations about this and i bring this up a lot on my podcast because i'm trying to sort of clear a, a path a little bit where i think a lot of it is sort of self uh, education like you've got to go out and you know like we've mentioned those publications and those resources and you know continue your education which you should be doing anyway if, you, if you're passionate about it but it it will be nice and i think there is a lot of emerging courses now where it's like okay well yes we're going to cover the basics of nutrition we're going to cover that but then we're going to really you know follow the line of performance and and what you're really really doing rather than just hey like people in hospital you know getting them better it's like yeah average is great but we want to be kind of up here we want to be studying you know the, the peak performance to springboard off that uh, with your experience and your research bill what are the the lesser known factors that contribute to the enhancement of one's physique that you think perhaps don't get enough credit or are overlooked a lot I'm going to say the, for the person on the outside looking in, it's going to be consistency and daily, daily grind um, and just not screwing up. So I'm, I'm probably not going to make a lot of people happy with my next statement. <laughs> and I'm a big proponent of flexible dieting, allowing yourself to have choices, planning to have your ice cream or for my case, like buffalo wings. But I almost feel like we're going too far to say, oh, don't beat yourself up if you, um, if you failed on your diet. And I agree with that. Who cares if you had an extra cookie or in my case, an extra bag or two? It's not the end of the world. <laughs> but if you're trying to improve your physique, you're not going to reach your destination if you're doing that. And again, I'm think I'm I'm I. The pendulum was you have to be perfect and have this meal plan, and you can never deviate. That's not good. Then we shifted to flexible dieting, and again, I'm a proponent of that. But I think it's almost swung so far where we're saying, "Oh, don't worry, you can have a you failed, you failed, you failed, you failed." That don't I'm not saying have guilt and beat yourself up. I am saying. If you keep failing, you're not going to get the physique you want. You, at some point, you have to stick to the plan. Mm. There's almost a little bit too much flexibility, isn't there? Yeah. Um, well, it's not even just flexibility. I think. What, and and again, let me know your thoughts on this one. From my observations, now flexible dieting is great. I'm a flexible diet advocate as well. But then again, I think it's all about context. I find with a lot of my clients, one of the areas which 
is a challenge for them, especially in females, is they are consistently trying to fill their nutrition with filler foods because they're not eating enough anyway. So when I take on females, I find that a lot of the time they've been limiting, they've been restraining uh, themselves a lot. They've never been eating an adequate amount of calories. They're scared to eat you know, an adequate amount without obviously just over consuming. And they're using what I call like fake foods, you know, foods that are just processed preservatives. They're trying to build a bulk of volume of food rather than eating real foods, which will, you know, satiate them, be more nutritious, and then, you know, still incorporate other foods. Like instead of having this ice cream, fake ice cream, just eat real ice cream, you know, I'll get a lower calorie one, but it's still actually real. It's not got loads of sugar, alcohols and preservatives and all that in it. And they always have sort of gut troubles. And I feel that that element of flexibility and also the choice, especially in your part of the world, there's just so much. I mean, you guys can get like, what, 1% milk, 2% milk. It's like you've just got everything, man. And based on what I can see, it's like sometimes that is uh, – there's, there's an area that is too much – it's too flexible and there needs to be sometimes some structure and rigidity brought back in without obviously it being a detriment. And people are running around going, oh, well, I've got these calories. I can eat whatever I want. And then they're just spending too much time procrastinating in the kitchen or trying to fit everything in their macros rather than just going, hey, let's just go back to some basics. Let's have some basic structure, the 80-20 rule, just throw it out there. And then let's kind of reincorporate some of those foods and then sort of work backwards again, because it's almost like if you give someone too much rope, they'll hang themselves. But I, I don't know what your thoughts on that are. So. No, I think you agree. I, I think I agree. I, I really like the idea. And again, going back to my philosophy of helping people optimize their physiques within a maintainable lifestyle, the idea of like um, a refeed. So you're trying to improve your physique, which means you have to diet. But most people, at least the research has shown, and if not, I live it. I eat a lot more food on the weekends. At least I want to. Mm -hmm. So why not prescribe a diet that matches our, our natural um, eating patterns where we're going to eat more on the weekend. So I think that's the beauty of a diet refeed and get, you know, you, you kind of plan. And I think that's a key word. You're prescribing this increase periodically. And now we know from the research in my lab, it maintains muscle mass better than not. It maintains metabolic rate better than not. Um, same for fat loss. And when I say better than not having a refeed, so I, I, I think we're saying the same thing and, and we're, we're, we're also saying if you, yeah, if you have too many choices, that can be difficult. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And this is probably a really good time to jump into some of that research then. Um, and on that study where you're looking at multi-day refeeds that improve, you know, physique enhancement, do you want to perhaps elaborate on that a little bit more and exactly why? Um, and can, again, let's not, let's just assume people are not hundred percent familiar. Maybe just quickly define refeeds and how you program them in the study. Yeah. And then just looking at like the, the, the key takeaways, I guess, for, for people listening and how they can then not only just for physique athletes, but then in everyday life can actually improve, you know, their body composition by, you know, internalizing and it sort of say incorporating these refeeds. All right. So let me start globally with. A, um, a refeed is similar to what another term called diet break, but diet break, you, diet break is what it sounds like. You're taking a break from the diet, and that's usually defined as a week break where you're back to maintenance calories or maybe even a little bit of a surplus mm -hmm. for seven days, maybe even 14 days. A diet refeed, same principle, but it's usually only one day per week or two days per week of increased calories. So that's how we define a diet refeed. And we did a study, which I'll talk about, but the, the context or the philosophy of why you would want to do that is you first have to have an appreciation that dieting has a lot of uh, some negative components associated with it. So I go with the philosophy Try to diet on as many calories as you can and don't spend your entire life in a diet phase. So I, that's just another guiding philosophy. So diet refeeds kind of fight against the negative consequences of dieting. And what are they? 
Well, the one is you lose muscle mass when you diet. Uh, uh, let me say, a lot of times you do. And if you try to lose weight quickly, you're going to lose more muscle mass. We know acutely muscle protein synthesis goes down. Muscle protein breakdown goes up, leading to a loss of muscle mass over time. And your metabolic rate goes down. Now, that's key because if your metabolic rate gets lowered with dieting, that makes future weight loss more difficult and the potential for future weight gain much more likely. So to sum all this up, we want to maintain muscle and we want to maintain our metabolic rate when dieting. What we found in our recent study on diet refeeds was a strategy to do that. So we took resistance trained males and females, and we had them both diet for seven weeks. One group dieted for seven weeks straight. So every day they reduced their calories by 25% for seven straight weeks. The other group also dieted for seven weeks, but they had two days of taking a break from the diet where we increased their calories in the form of carbohydrates back to maintenance levels. And we had them do that on the weekends. At least that was what they were encouraged to do. Mm -hmm. Now, they both on average dieted by 25%. So the, the group that didn't do refeeds, that's exactly what they did. Every day, a 25% caloric restriction. The refeed group, though, they actually had to reduce their calories by 35% Monday through Friday. Because on Saturday and Sunday, we took it back up to maintenance level calories for 100%. So that at the end of the week, it averaged to be a 25% reduction. Mm -hmm. so what we found at the end of the seven weeks was that both groups lost muscle mass, but the refeed group lost significantly less muscle than the group that didn't take these breaks. Same thing with metabolic rate. They both lost metabolic rate. The straight group or the, the, the group that didn't take breaks lost about 80 calories per day the refeed group only lost 40 calories per day, which was not a significant loss. Mm -hmm. um, fat loss was equal between the groups. So there's a situation where we now have data to support taking a break seems to be a good thing. And the argument is maybe it will take them longer. Well, I'm all for that. I'm, I'm, I'm a snail when it comes to dieting and, and weight loss. Take your time. Uh, don't be in a hurry. Make it part of your lifestyle. So there, there was that study summary. Yeah. I, and just to confirm, that was with resistance trained females, that one. Is that correct? Uh, close. Uh, resistance trained males and females. Oh, in both. That study. Yeah. And they lurked out in our physique lab. So we supervised every set, every workout. They tracked their macros. They had to submit them every week. A lot of my studies, though, especially more recently, are almost always in resistance-trained females, sometimes males as well, but we do have a, a bend towards females. Is there any reason for that? I just like females better. <laughs> oh, I'll agree on that one. <laughs> yeah. now, I'll, give, I'll give yeah two reasons. Um, one is they're more mature at, at a younger age, so we're typically college-age students, 18 to 25. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel that they're better subjects. Again, just they're just a little more mature at that age. And the second thing is they don't have an ego. So when they're lifting weights in the lab, they're, they're a little bit just easier to work with. And then three, they've been ignored for my entire career as research subjects in this sports nutrition resistance exercise literature. So I, I, I understand that I've had some benefits and I'm trying to, for whatever, to whatever extent I can, put the focus on females because not, nobody else does. So guess who gets attention for that? Me. So that's good for me. Yeah, no, fantastic. You can definitely see, uh, see the benefits of that, you know, from a logistical point of view as well. And I feel that females are more analytical in nature and that they would be more precise uh, and committed if they do fully commit to it, which I think is definitely a benefit. In terms of um, single-day refeeds versus multi-day refeeds, so you know one day versus two days, what are the main discrepancies or, or research that you found between the two? And if so, 
why are the multi-day or the two-day refeeds better and why do we need to perhaps keep them together for example some people go oh I'll, I'll have a refeed on tuesday and then i'll have a refeed on friday so they're still having two days and it's still offsetting their energy balance but obviously having them together creates a bit of a difference have you done much research in that area and if so what are the findings and what are your thoughts and feedback on it yeah so there were two reasons why we happened to choose a two-day rather than two days that were split so we did two consecutive days and the reason was that we had we based some based that on some prior research in postmenopausal women who increased carbs for two consecutive days, it might have even been three, and that showed that there was an increase in leptin concentration. So there was one at least something to say, okay, let's do this two days in a row. Mm -hmm. The other thing was to just fit the natural eating habits of most people who want to eat more um, carbs on the weekend. So John Gorman, I don't know if you know John Gorman. He was a, he's a, a, pretty, a really high level coach here. Um, he's like a, he works with, he does, he works with Cliff Wilson. Um, okay. Yeah. He's yeah, kind of like yeah, a Paul yeah. Revelia, Lane Norton um, kind of guy, like well-respected, gets great results. So he was actually on our team to design this study. Mm -hmm. In his personal coaching business, he does not do consecutive day refeeds. He does Tuesday and Saturday or, Monday, Thursday, and he, he feels that that is better. Now, we just disagreed on what we were going to do on our study mm -hmm. um, for the reasons that I said, but we don't know. It's possible that splitting them up, it could be better. I don't know because we didn't test that, and he would say in his experience that it is better, but we just don't have data to support that yet, so I have no problems with going splitting them up, but again, just in my lifestyle, and I think in a lot of people's, the weekends mimic increased food. So that's kind of why we tailored the study to that kind of approach. Yeah, no, for sure. And I can definitely, like in my own experience, anecdotally, say that it definitely helped me when I was in comp prep. We would have been single day refeeds and then we went to, uh, you know, multi-day refeeds consecutively. And yeah, uh, I seem to, you know, the fat loss was more prevalent. Um, again, it wasn't magic. I think people go, you know, a lot of time when I'm explaining refeeds to people, guys, oh, so, so they always say, so how's this work? How's this magic work? I'm like, it's not, it's not magic. Like, and I think one of the biggest mistakes I see is, people who just have they go oh, a cheat day and I go, it's not a cheat day <laughs> it's not it's not a cheat day you can eat yourself out of a deficit quite easily but that we are still calculating the weekly average and if we do increase those refeed days then that means that the other days have got to drop depending on you know the, the deficit that we're creating but yeah i definitely found that training performance went up muscle mass retention was greater um, adherence, focus, all of those little things were, were increased. And I think it was around that time because it was 2018. And then I think that's when this paper or there was more emerging research started to come out on the multi-day refeeds. And I know I was listening to Helms at the time and they started to do some more interpretations of this and go, yeah, like we can confirm a little bit more now that this could be more advantageous. But obviously, as you said, there's still coaches out there that use single days and, you know, non-concurrent days. And there's nothing wrong with that. At the end of the day, it's research, it's individual. If it works, it works. But I definitely see a benefit personally and from working with clients that the multi-day refeeds seem to be more advantageous. Yeah. Jumping over to um, one of your other studies, the post-comp effects and then reverse diets, etc. So looking at a lot of the, I guess, detrimental effects after a dieting phase now obviously when we're looking at comp prep athletes this is a lot more severe than say someone who perhaps just want to lose some weight but what are some findings that can correlate over to everyday people at the end of a dieting phase so say someone's lost you know 20 pounds 30 pounds 40 pounds whatever it might be and now they go right cool i've lost the amount of weight i want to lose what are some of the protocols or maybe recommendations to then, you know, increase food or start to build back some, some healthier, say, habits away from that dieting, you know, bout of time? Yeah, so I, I would say the, the, the best thing that can be done, which is probably why people hire you, is to have a plan 
after the diet or after the show. If, cause there's a lot of planning getting ready to step on the stage. And in my experience, just watching this, this, um, this segment of the population, like natural bodybuilding, when people don't have a plan for after the show, it can be quite, quite sad to see how much weight is gained very quickly. Oh yeah. So, and a, a lot of that is contingent upon what did you have to do to get on stage? If that had to be really severe, well, you're just setting yourself up for fat overshoot, which is gaining more fat than what you had before you started the diet afterwards. So I, I, I would say the most important thing is to have a plan. Now you might fail on that plan, but you're not going to, you're not, you're going to be in a better situation having something to aim for than nothing. So even if you fail, that's better than having no plan. And then it goes down to the argument. And this is interesting. We actually wanted to make that study a, and let me give credit to James Longstrom. He now works for Lane Norton. He was a master student of mine. That He mm -hmm. designed that study. He coordinated it. So James Longstrom is kind of the expert on this. But what he really wanted to do was look at a, a reverse diet where people, after the show, they increase their calories just a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, every week, every week, for 8, 10, 12, 3 months. And he wanted to compare that against a recovery diet, which I think Eric Helms kind of popularizes. Mm -hmm. Instead of increasing your calories a little bit, you're more aggressive after the show because you don't mind gaining some fat to get into your off season. Unfortunately, that study that we, that we published, we, we couldn't make that the actual intent because the lines were too blurred between the people who were doing a recovery versus a um, a recovery diet and those people doing the reverse diet. So we couldn't make any type of comments or conclusions on that, but that's where he wanted to take it. Um, so other than that, other than having a plan and just trying to protect your metabolism going into your weight loss, I think is the best thing you can do. Yeah, no, for sure. And, there's something to add on there, Bill. I don't know, again, if the research has been done here, but I always find a trend between obviously newer athletes or people who are first-time competitors or first-time like even dieters versus experience. And I believe the, the study was done on experienced um, athletes that they can obviously manage it better. One, because generally if you do something more, well, you'd hope that you get better at it. And also that experience comes in, your body's kind of been there before, you know, there's multiple factors at play. I find the first time anyone ever diets, uh, like to get very lean, they always rebound that little bit harder, regardless of whether they've got a plan or not. And then over time, it sort of does get a little bit more, um, the the weight regain is less you can manage it more now whether that's because you know you just you do get more experienced and mentally you're more predisposed for that or whether the body uh, there's you know there's physiological changes going on there i know that uh, an experienced coach here said to me when i was was coming into the, this first competition he said um you know because i said oh you know get get leaner and he's like well like you're already lean he's like put it this way he's like you could get leaner this time he goes but at the detriment of losing more muscle but also having a tougher time after you come out of the competition or he said because it's your first time you're already like very lean he's like but you know it's your first time this is <clears throat> excuse me a lot for the body he says you may want to do this because you're going to compete again he goes it's hard now because you're here and it takes a lot of effort but he goes, think about the future. And then perhaps your body will be more accepting of, okay, I've been here before. Now I can get a little bit leaner. You know, I've got, got, got a bit more muscle mass, et cetera. And to kind of highlight something that you said, especially with the female athletes, there is, it's quite sad. There's, there's been, obviously, with this COVID-19, um, you know, a lot of people wouldn't, weren't able to compete in season A. And, yeah, I've seen a lot of massacre uh, unfortunately have, of especially females put on so much weight because their coaches have not given them a plan. But also, as you said, with your research earlier, Bill, it's it, before the research, there's so much prep work. And I think that unfortunately, and I use this analogy, a lot of athletes that get sent into battle stage 
with no skill set of how to use their weapons. And then after the battle, they're dying on the sword because they've not learned to create good habits and behaviors with nutrition. There's been no flexible dining. There's, there's, they, all they know is tracking through my fitness pal and they end up with eating disorders and then they end up blowing out and it's horrible. Then they don't want to compete again because they've had a bad taste in their mouth. And perhaps if some of those conversations and skills would have been learned earlier on, it wouldn't have been that way. And perhaps, you know, we, we'd see a lot of different outcomes with, you know, these, these competitors. So I, again, a long winded uh, way of going through a couple of things there, but I just wanted to underpin it, but is there any research yeah, on sort of newer athletes versus, you know, more experienced and have, do you see those trends um, within weight rebound? No, I'm not aware of any research other than what we published in that study. And most of them were experienced. There were some high level natural physique athletes in that. And then there was one female in particular that was her first show. So we give all of that. And the, the, the reality is the real experts on what you're asking are you. You're the one working with the clients. There's not, there's not research on it. Again, not that I'm aware of. There's not published research on, on this stuff yet. Yeah, it's, it's, I imagine it's, it's more anecdotal. It's more like hands-on experience sort of thing because obviously everything's very controlled in the lab. Um, before we get on to my last round of questions, because I'm just um, I'm looking at the time here, one of the last ones I wanted to ask was, if you could summarize and bullet point, I know this can be quite challenging, the main things people can do from research to correlate into, you know, everyday life to improve their physique for everyday people. If you could extrapolate key points that you've learned over your time, it could be free research. It could have been stuff you found yourself just at yeah. home and going, Oh, you know, you know, the biggest things that you think can help, like you said, everyday people who want to look like bodybuilders. So I, I, I love that question. And this has been something I've been grappling with for a while in my own head. And, and here's where I'm currently at. I, I think a lot of people, they see research and they see, let's just say the training part of it. Okay, they did 24 sets for lower body per week. They did 18 for the upper body. That's what I'm going to do. And I would say, I don't think that's a good way to approach it. Don't take exactly what they did in that research because that might not fit for your lifestyle or your physique or your stage of the process wherever you're at, ideally. Instead, take the principles that the research is demonstrating. So what are those principles? Well, the main principle is resistance train, right? So if you want to improve your physique, Resistance train, that's the best mode of exercise you can do to change your physique or to improve your physique. Now you can start getting into the minutia, which a lot of people like to do, but don't necessarily take that program from that study and think that's the best one. Um, and maybe it is for you, maybe start with that, but then say, okay, this is not enough here or it's too much there. So don't treat the research as gospel for you. The other side of that is, let's say, protein. So in my studies, our last study, let's just say, we did a rapid fat loss study, which the COVID-19 made us pause that study. But we had our subjects eat 2.2 grams of protein per kilogram of body mass. That's quite normal for bodybuilders, but that's really high for most people. Mm -hmm. So don't look at that when we publish this. Don't look at that and say, oh, I need to eat 2.2 grams per kg. No. Maybe you can get away with 1.4 if that's what fits your lifestyle. So the principle is higher protein is better. The principle is resistance training. Don't take the research studies as gospel because if you take it as gospel, next week another study is going to come out saying that what this one said isn't ideal. So take principles and apply them to your situation. There's my answer. Fantastic. I appreciate it, Bill. Now, moving on to the, the rapid fire questions. I always ask my guest at the end. These are just a bit more lighthearted. They're a bit of fun before my final question. So whatever comes to mind, a bit of a knee-jerk reaction, go for it. All so right. my, my first question is, if you could choose a superpower, what would it be and why? Oh, I think I'd like to be invisible, but I don't want to tell you why. <laughs> okay. And the second one, uh, I, and I, maybe I already know what this one is. <laughs> That's good. I like that. 
Um, what would be, if you had one last meal or a, yeah, a food you had to eat for the rest of your life, what would it look like? It could be an entree. It could be dinner and dessert. It could just be one thing. Is it, is it wings? It would either, it would, the thing that came to my head was chocolate chip cookies. So I would say chocolate chip cookies, but I would have to have milk. So if I can't have milk, then I would say buffalo wings. Uh, no, fair enough. No, definitely you can have milk. Milk and cookies. I mean, they go together like peas in a pod, right? <laughs> All right. And um, I'll, I'll, I'll throw you another one. If you could wake up anywhere in the world tomorrow, right? And you could bring anyone with you anywhere in the world tomorrow, where would it be and why? Anywhere in the world. Ooh, I, I've always wanted to go to Rome. Um, so I would, I guess Rome, I'd love to see the Colosseum and I'd, I'd like my wife to go with me, but she hates traveling. So, but I would say in Rome with my wife. There you go. And that's the magic of this. You can just appear, you just wake up there. There's no traveling. She doesn't have to go through that experience. Yeah. She just doesn't like even, 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 and then she still wouldn't want to go. <laughs> <laughs> She's a home girl, is she? Purely. Yes. Yep. And my final question, Bill, which I ask all my guests is, can you identify a fear in your life, can be big, can be small, that you've faced, that you've overcame, what it was and what it taught you, what you took out of that experience? Fear. Uh, I, I always use like public, public speaking. People always, I use that as an example. Don't necessarily use that, but I mean, people go, oh yeah, but, but as in like, you know, it could be something like that. It could have been something in research. I don't know. It could have been a belief, but it could be anything. All right. So this is rapid fire. So I'm going to say the thing that came to my mind and, and you will laugh. And I think most people will laugh, but uh, it was just being active on social media. So I'm only active on Instagram, but I really fear I had a lot of anxiety Oh, I don't want to do that. Um, I don't know what to post. Um, I'll screw up the whole photo because I'm old. I'm I'm in my mid forties, so technology is not second nature to me. Mm -hmm. So I made a decision last year when I got promoted. I said I need to fundamentally change how I approach my every day. And what I decided, one of those things that I fundamentally changed was being active on social media. So right, I'll, I'll show you this. This is my little list of things that I have to get done today. It's just five things. And at the top, the very first one says IG post. So I've, I've been true to myself in saying, I'm going to fundamentally change the way I approach my work. And the biggest change that I've made was embracing social media, which I had not done until about a year ago. So that's not a major fear, but it was a fear of mine. No, I, th I think that's a really good one, Bill, because like you said, people take that for granted. Um, there's different generations. It's not something that you probably, well, even when I was a kid, it was, we didn't have that. I remember the mobile was for emergencies and playing the snake game. on <laughs> And now, you know, you're right. And now you've got, kids walking around with iPads and I, you know, it's, I'm not having a go. It is what it is, but yeah, it's very interesting to see how that has changed. And I think for a lot of people like yourself who, you know, are, are deep in the educational realms, you do, it's easy to forget about that stuff. Cause you're like, ah, but there is a benefit to it. So it's good. Good to see that you've got a uh, to-do list there and, and you're putting it out there. Cause there's probably a lot of people now that want to, want to, you know, get that information from you and it is going to help people. So in many ways, you are doing, you know, a good deed, if you like, by, you know, as long as you're posting good stuff, which I imagine you are, <laughs> um, people are going to want to want to hear about it more and more. And I think a lot of people have kind of had that fear and resistance, because like you said, you, you're exposing yourself to a lot of people, and you're going to get, you know, good, and you're going to get bad. And I guess social media has give everyone a voice, whether that's a, a yeah. good thing or not. Now, Bill, for, for people who want to find out more about yourself, they want to read more of your research, they want to stay up to date, where are the best places, resources, and locations to find them? So there's only one, and it's Instagram. And my username is Bill Campbell, PhD. So everything I do is put in my posts. Um, I, I, I spend a lot of time educating. Um, I always, I'm telling people, if you, if you just follow me on Instagram, you're going to, you're going to have a degree in exercise and nutrition science in three years, because everything I learn, I put into, in, into that medium. 
of communication. That is absolutely fantastic, Bill. And I'll make sure I include those links. So for people who want to improve their, not my pleasure, improve their education, they can certainly do so. I want to thank you for your time again, Bill. And, you know, the great work you're doing with your team. I think it's phenomenal. Again, what a job providing, you know, the frontline research for, for people who just want to look absolutely amazing. Um, and why not, right? No one wants to be average. Um, as always, guys, for everyone listening, leave a rating and review on iTunes. Leave a comment. Let us know what you learned. Let us know what you want to see more of. Really appreciate it. And, of course, until next week, stay fearless.